You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Today's anonymous data may be tomorrow's de-anonymized data. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. This episode is for September 16th, 2020. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, I have the story of adult websites and their reaction to deepfakes. Ben describes a ruling from the Ninth Circuit Court that has Fourth Amendment implications. And later in the show, my conversation with Scott Giordano. He's VP and Senior Counsel, Privacy and Compliance at Spirion. And he's going to be discussing the surprising ways your data can be used against you and how you can protect yourself and those who matter most. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, let's uh, kick things off with some stories this week. Uh, You've got an interesting one. What do you have for us? Yeah, so a major court case came out last week relating to the now defunct call detail records program. I feel like a broken record on this because I know we've talked about it ad nauseum, but they're keep, you know, <laughs> we keep getting these new news developments, and I, I don't want to leave our listeners hanging. So I'll give as brief a background as possible. We had this phone metadata program where the federal government, as a matter of course, was collecting nearly all domestic phone records, the metadata. So who made the call, who received the call, the duration of the call. This was authorized pursuant to the USA Patriot Act, Section 215. It was one of the programs uncovered by Edward Snowden. Congress got very angry once this program was uncovered, at least uh, how the program was being carried out at the time. So they essentially ended it. But before they ended it, somebody had been arrested, potentially based on evidence obtained through this call detail records program. And that person was named Basali Saeed Molan. uh, And he is the subject of this Ninth Circuit case. Uh, So he is a Somalian immigrant came to the United States and was accused of providing a material support to a terrorist group or an alleged terrorist group in Somalia. And some of the evidence that was used, particularly in later stages of the investigation, was from these call detail records. After the NSA and the FBI did some investigative work, they found out that his phone number was making calls to a suspected terrorist overseas. And so that was at least part of the reason why he was arrested and convicted. He was actually, the original conviction was seven years ago. 
for a bunch of procedural reasons, it took until 2020 for the case to be resolved. So what we got from the Ninth Circuit is that the phone metadata program, as it existed prior to 2015, is very likely to be unconstitutional. They did not make a definitive ruling because they said that it wouldn't really have mattered whether this evidence was suppressed or not because the conviction would have been upheld even absent this evidence. But they did muse at length about the constitutional problems with Section 215 and the phone metadata program. And that's the first time a court at this level has really grappled with the constitutional issues. We've seen district court cases that have done so at the lower level, and we've seen appeals court cases that have made rulings on narrower grounds, such as standing and whether the statute itself authorizes this type of collection. But we've never seen courts go deeply into the constitutional issues here. And that's what uh, the court did here. So to sum it up really briefly, the precedent case for all metadata is Smith v. Maryland, which applied what's called the third-party doctrine to electronic communications. Mm-hmm. Basically, what that decision held is that if you voluntarily convey information to a third party, like a phone company, you forfeit your reasonable expectation of privacy, and therefore you don't have any Fourth Amendment protection. Now, that case was about a single individual and a local police department that placed a pen register that recorded the numbers that that individual dialed. Obviously, technology has changed significantly since 1979 when this case was decided. And what this court is saying is technology has changed in such a sufficient manner that we can no longer use Smith as precedent when we're talking about bulk metadata. Hmm. That metadata reveals so much more now than it did back then. And they give some examples. They also cite some other cases, including from the Supreme Court, where justices have talked about how much information, private information, you can glean from this type of bulk metadata. So in the view of this court, when you look at the totality of the circumstances, they think that the Smith precedent should not apply in situations like this. Uh, In their view, this program is very likely unconstitutional. And if it still existed today, it's possible that we'd see it struck down by the Supreme Court or by the Ninth Circuit itself. So certainly a, a landmark decision. Now, since the program has already been done away with, I mean, is this kind of a, I don't know, a period on the end of that sentence? Yeah, I feel like this is the final nail in the coffin of the Section 215 program. We had already had both the NSA itself and all sorts of intelligence experts saying that this was largely an ineffective counterterrorism program. I know we've talked about this, that phone metadata is just not that useful of a tool anymore. Maybe it was back in the ancient days of the 2000s. Um, (laughs) But, you know, these days people communicate on via secure applications. Nobody makes phone calls. I basically, I call my parents and that's about it. (laughs) So it's just not that effective of a counterterrorism tool. And from what the court is saying here, the fact that it's ineffective means that you can't justify the invasion of privacy. So I think this really is the proverbial death knell for this program. I don't think You know, it was going to come back as it existed prior to 2015. I don't think Congress was going to reauthorize it to that extent. But I think this just sort of puts the the icing on the cake. Yeah, interesting uh, that uh, on Twitter, uh, Edward Snowden himself was crowing about this, sort of uh, raising his flag as a a victory. Yeah, he was doing a little chest thumping. And you know what? (laughs) Whether you like Snowden or not, I think he deserves his chest thump here. I mean, the only way we know about the existence of the call detail records program 
was because of the Snowden leaks. And it really did cause dramatic change, both in Congress and among the courts. So it was a success for the country. I mean, I think Snowden has his own motives. He thinks, you know, well, maybe Donald Trump will pardon me now that this program has been uh, shown to potentially be unconstitutional. I've been vindicated. Uh, but he certainly has a right to claim some victory here. Yeah, the conversations I've had with folks in the intelligence community who are not pro-Snowden will make the point that the way that he released the information he did, the, the amount of information that he released, the subtext seems to be that perhaps lives were lost in the intelligence community because of the information that uh, he released in the way he did, which is a you know, an interesting counterpoint to Yeah. Oh, it's that. important to remember. I've heard the same thing. You know, I've had students who've been in the intelligence community and they just they get a, a seething look on their face when they talk about Snowden. And so I'm I'm sympathetic to that as well. And just because he can claim vindication as it relates to this program, it does not necessarily mean he can claim vindication for all the documents he released. And we're talking about volumes and volumes uh, of documents. I wanted yeah. to touch on one other thing about this case quickly, if mm. I could. Sure. The Ninth Circuit also said for the first time that the government has to give notice to potential criminal defendants that they've used this type of surveillance technique. Previously, courts have said and, and Congress has said that notice has to be given to criminal defendants when a warrant has been issued or in the intelligence context when there has been a FISA warrant uh, or an authorized FISA search. But never has this notice requirement been applied in situations like this where there has not been a warrant. No warrant was issued here. And when it was very unclear in the first place whether this was even a Fourth Amendment search to begin with, particularly if you believe the precedent from Smith v. Maryland. So that might be the biggest tangible impact of this case that we have for the first time a court saying that when some sort of foreign intelligence technique is used, even if a warrant is not obtained, the defendant has to be given notice of this type of surveillance so that they can attack it at trial. And a lot of legal scholars, including our boy, Mr. Oren Kerr, uh, have already <laughs> written uh, on this and talked about the broad implications and what this means going forward. Uh, so huh. just certainly something to, to look out for. That's something I don't think people were expecting to see from this case. And, you know, now, at least in future proceedings at the Ninth Circuit, you're going to have to have this type of surveillance revealed, even if it does not emanate from a warrant to criminal defendants or terrorist uh, targets. Hmm. All right. Well, interesting uh, developments uh, for sure. And uh, I'm going to pivot now and go from the, uh, the important uh, topic of constitutional law to porn. Uh, <laughs> talk about, yes. And, uh, They're both is, adult subjects, but just well, in, very, in very different that's ways. That's true, yeah. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, this is a story from Wired. Uh, written by uh, Matt Burgess uh, over at Wired UK. And the title of the article is Porn Sites Still Won't Take Down Non-Consensual Deepfakes. And it's the, it's the deepfakes angle here that I think is particularly interesting for us. And the, the reality is, is that uh, you have these um, porn sites online, which are very popular, of course, some of the most popular sites on the internet, period. And I guess a lot of them allow people to upload videos. And more and more, the problem is that 
people are uploading deepfakes, which is, uh, for those who, just a quick review, deepfakes are when you're able to use uh, computer technology to map the face of one person onto the body of another person. And the software has gotten to the point now where it's very convincing and easy to do, so it doesn't cost a lot of money, doesn't take a lot of time. Uh, Our computers have gotten so powerful and uh, so fast that this is not out of reach of, of the folks who set out to do this sort of thing. And so the issue is that many of these porn sites, well, they make money off of people watching the videos. The videos are surrounded by ads and so on and so forth. So they're, they're interested in generating page views. And so if uh, people can log on and see these deep fakes that, that may involve their, their favorite celebrities, they mention uh, folks like Emma Watson, Natalie Portman, uh, Taylor Swift, and that generates page clicks. And evidently, these sites are slow to take down the videos. And that has a lot of people uh, upset that uh, there really isn't a a legal framework here to speed this up. What do you make of this, Ben? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's a sad story in a lot of ways. I mean, it's very exploitative of the individuals who are depicted in deepfakes. And that's obviously Mm -hmm. the biggest problem. But just the fact that you have all these... and it's generally guys who have sad enough lives that they need to fantasize about their celebrity crushes and the the technology (laughs) exists that they can do so in pornographic videos is just kind of depressing to me. But yeah, I mean, the lack of legal recourse here is very problematic. There are a few potential avenues. So you can uh, file a defamation suit. That's generally not going to be successful when we're talking about high-profile celebrities just because they're in the public eye. There's a more stringent standard in terms of protecting First Amendment rights when we're talking about people who are very public figures. Mm. It might work, you know, in some of the more extreme examples where you have not, you know, celebrities who are being depicted, but non-celebrities, even people like YouTube stars, young YouTube stars, Mm -hmm. um, you might Mm -hmm. have a better defamation case there. Uh, And there are some other causes of action. They're generally not successful. They're very onerous. You know, you'd you'd have to have a good attorney to be successful. So you're really kind of out of options if you're being depicted here. It is very exploitative. It does hurt a person's reputation. And that's just sort of uh, the least of the problems there. Yeah. And it's not fast. The good thing for these sites to do would be to err on the side of if someone complains about a user submitted video, it just it just take it down. It comes down quickly. Right. <laughs> and then and figure it out later. Let uh, people argue or duke it out while the video is not online anymore. Let this, if, this, if there's ever an, a, an area to err on the side of caution, well, this would be one of them. Yeah. One Another thing I worry about related to that point is once it goes up on one site, then you start to get into darker areas of the web where... Right. They might right. not be as amenable to request to take down this information. And so these yeah. videos can spread like wildfires. I hate to use that metaphor given what's happening in my home yeah. state right now. Uh, yeah. But these videos can, can spread very quickly. So it's not just the high profile websites that they mention here. It's that, you know, it can end up in some of the darker corners of the Internet. Yeah. I was curious to see you know, what, what was going on in terms of policy and legislation. So I was doing some digging around and I found a, an article from uh, the folks over at Malwarebytes. This is something they published back in January about some of the laws that and proposals that are making their way around the country. Some states, they said California, Virginia and Texas already have deep fake laws. 
There are some in Massachusetts, New York, and in our own state, Maryland. Interesting to me that the Maryland law primarily focuses on election fraud, which, hey, politicians looking out for themselves. Imagine that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> one thing that struck me was um, they listed some of the, the uh, federal deep fake legislation before Congress. I cannot let this pass. One of them is called the Defending Each and Every Person from False Appearances by Keeping Exploitation Subject. We what got that an spell acronym, out? baby. What, what does it spell out, Ben? It spells out deep, deep fakes. fakes. <laughs> oh, you know me and my acronyms. There's, there's nothing that a that a I guess a, a congressional intern likes better than being able to to come up with a name for something that spells out the thing that it is. Right? In my second life, I just want to have the job of the person who develops congressional. Uh, uh, acronyms. I mean, a lot of the laws we talk about on here, USA Patriot Act, USA Freedom Act, those are acronyms, uh, which is unknown to some people. Um, <laughs> really? This isn't this is an especially good one. So yeah. cre- credit for that, at least. Yeah, a lot yeah. of states uh, have laws that relate uh, to the political realm. They don't want, you know, the words of politicians to be twisted in a way that misrepresents what they've actually said. So there's that viral video that went around a couple of years ago of I think it was uh, Key and Peele did a sketch where it made they made it look like Obama was they're using deep fake technology mm-hmm. uh, made it look like Obama was saying something that he never actually said. And it was right. really right. well done and, and very effective. And I think, you know, that's a major fear that that could interrupt our, our political process, especially when you have malicious foreign actors who would benefit from doing mm-hmm. such a thing. So, you know, because the technology is easy to use and it's cheap, it certainly could allow fake political uh, information to get out there. That's a, a very serious problem. I think just as serious as the exploitative nature of deep fake pornographic videos. Um, yeah. So I think it's incumbent upon states to address both problems. And it seems like some of them are sort of starting to get there, uh, but we're still in our very early stages. Yeah, and it seems as though when these things do come up for vote, it seems like they get broad bipartisan support. Everybody seems to be on board. Yeah, absolutely. My philosophy is eventually everything becomes polarized, but at least for right now, um, yeah. I mean, not the least bit cynical, are you, Ben? I am not cynical at all. But you know what? On the positive side, at least for right now, I do think there really is bipartisan support for doing away or just at least giving a cause of action for the individuals who are depicted in, in these videos. So I guess that's one positive to draw away from this. All right. Well, those are our stories for this week. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can call in. It's 410-618-3720. You can also send us an email to caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership 
while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Scott Giordano. He is VP and Senior Counsel for Privacy and Compliance at Spirion. And our discussion centered on some of the ways that your own data can be used against you, uh, as well as ways you can protect yourself and your loved ones. Here's my conversation with Scott Giordano. Here's the problem with mobile devices is that, and by the way, the applications that, uh, that really power them, is that we have so many choices available to us to do all kinds of wonderful things, but we don't really see what's going on behind the scenes. We don't understand where our personal data is being sent, who's using it, why they're using it, how they're using it, with whom they're sharing it. There's so much we don't know, and that's the problem, and that casts a shadow over everything that we do with mobile devices and and soon really everything that connects to the internet, whether it's an internet-connected refrigerator or thermostat or fish tank, as the case may be, um, it's mm. a problem for all of those things. Well, can you give us some examples of, of in day-to-day life, the, the types of uh, information that folks are, are turning over over the course of their day? A great place to look is in lawsuits. And I'll give you a couple of really crisp examples is the Zoom. Um, Zoom as in the Zoom video that we've all been using probably for the last four or five months. There was a lawsuit recently filed against Zoom because among other problems, Zoom was sharing information automatically with Facebook. And this was true even if you didn't have a Facebook account. So you have all the shadow data floating around out there. It was being used without your, your explicit permission. And that's a problem. Same thing with the, the Ring doorbell, the, the Ring security doorbell. Again, we're all well-versed with. There were a lot of problems with the security piece of it, but also with the privacy piece in the sense that there were trackers in the app that uh, the Ring doorbell uses. And that was sending personal information to all kinds of third parties. And these are things, again, that you and I really can't tell what's going on. We don't know what information is being shared, and we're trusting implicitly all of these devices. And uh, it's um, uh, it's really not a good practice to get involved in. Yeah, I saw, you know, in the past year or so, there was uh, the revelation that I believe it was a, a weather app that was uh, yes. gathering up a lot more information than, than folks thought it would. Yes, yes, the Weather Channel app. And in fact, there was a a lawsuit about that. I don't know if that um, has been settled out of court or it's still pending. But yes, the weather app uh, that's powered by IBM, as they like to say, and um, I hate to say it, but it's the app I use to check the weather here in Seattle that was selling personal information uh, without users' permission. Now, what about the flip side of this? I mean, the the providers of these apps, of these services, certainly organizations like Facebook, they'll say, well, when you signed up for our service, you agreed that we are entitled to gather this information. You you click that box, you said, I agree, and so we're good here. Well, we're not good here, and, and here's why. Um, because ordinary people have no idea what's really being done with their data behind the scenes. And in fact, um, Google was sanctioned for this by the French Data Protection Authority, the CNIL, because they had one box And they had about 20 different processes. So you had one box to check. You couldn't differentiate among those different processes or uses and say, well, I want you to use my data for this, but not for this. It was, as as I'd like to joke, one box to rule them all. And it's (laughs) not really consent. If you're consenting to anything and everything with one box, 
you don't really give the users much of a choice except not to use your product at all. And that kind of defeats the purpose of why we have the internet and we have all these great products. Have we seen any meaningful shifts in this? I mean, with things like GDPR, with uh, CCPA out of California, are, are they really moving the needle? They are. They are. And I've worked on many projects getting ready, in fact, for GDPR. And it really changed the culture. It changed the dynamics of these organizations where they had to, perhaps for the first time, think about what personal data they had, what they were doing with it, with whom they were sharing it, how they were using it, all these questions. And this is something that traditionally you haven't really had to answer, except if there was a breach and there was some kind of exfiltration of data, then the question is, well, what did we have and what were we doing with it? And that doesn't really bode well whenever there's an investigation by an authority and they ask you why you had the data and you can't tell them. And that was one of the uh, one of the problems with the Equifax case in the UK, when the UK Data Protection Authority asked them about why did you have certain data, they couldn't tell you. And so that was not... That uh, was not well received, to say the least. Is there still this this culture among these companies that it, I don't know? Just because we can, we will. You know, when it comes to gathering data, that that all data has value, and and so because storage is cheap and we have access to it, uh, we might as well vacuum it up, and maybe it has value to sell to someone else. Yeah, that's a very traditional American culture, American view, certainly very Silicon Valley, the idea of move fast and break things. And the problem is that in that process, it's our own our own personal data, our own lives that are suffering as a consequence. Can you give us some examples of, you know, when we're talking about data that's been anonymized, we hear that a lot, that you it, relax, it's okay, the data's been anonymized, uh, no one can trace it back to you, but it's a little more complicated than that. It is because today's anonymous data may be tomorrow's de-anonymized data. And uh, Bruce Schneer, who's uh, I'm sure many of your listeners probably follow or at least have heard of, um, he wrote about this um, in one of his books where he talked about the uh, the Kinsey study that happened in mid-century, last century, if you will, and uh, about human sexuality and how all of these participants that were anonymous then could be easily de-anonymized today. And so it really raises a larger question. If your study that you're doing today on human sexuality is anonymous, but next week, next year, a data science breakthrough happens and suddenly everyone's de-anonymized, how does that change the dynamic? And, and I don't think that, unfortunately, everyone's thinking about this. They're thinking about what can we do with the data we have? How can we monetize it? And that's in and of itself not bad, but you always have to think about the externalities. How is this going to impact real people? You know, we're seeing reports, Apple, for example, in the next version of iOS, their mobile operating system, they're going to be alerting users more overtly when apps try to gather information. It, it'll it'll tell you, there's apps trying to gather this bit of information about you, are you going to allow that? It, it seems like that could be a move in the right direction. It is, it is, and that should be the model going forward, is now you're, as a consumer, I'm not just giving consent, I'm giving informed consent, which really is the the touchstone for consent. And certainly that's how it's being done with the GDPR. Consent uh, under that regulation has to be informed. People have to know what they're consenting to. So yes, this model is, that Apple is doing is great. Um, I think it's long overdue, but I'm glad that they're doing it. Do you think we're, we're going to see that going forward? I mean, is it possible that companies will see embracing privacy as a competitive advantage? I do. I see popular companies, again, like Apple, using that as a marketplace competitive advantage. 
Unfortunately, there are plenty of companies out there, though, that see your data as the whole reason why they created the app or the device, and all they want to do is get it and monetize it. And however they do it, uh, they're not too concerned about the external effects um, on individuals. Where do you suppose we're headed? I mean, I hear a lot of people saying that um, what we really need is is some sort of... Uh, you know, federal legislation, some some regulations at the federal level so that we don't have a patchwork of state-by-state regulations. Uh, do you think that's a possibility? I don't. I think that train left the station five, ten years ago. Um, hmm. Right now, if you look at uh, maybe the last two years of legislation, about 35 states have updated their cybersecurity and privacy regulations. California is the, the most well-known, but New York's actually has a much lower threshold. It applies to anyone. In, in the U.S., not just certain companies that have certain revenues. Anyone that even looks at the personal data of a New York resident is subject to the New York Shield Act. So we're seeing that this is really being done at the state level, that things that the federal government should have done are now being done at the states, and it's probably best to leave the states to do it. And, and again, where do you suppose we're headed with this? Or, or do you feel like we're headed in the right direction? Is the will of the public to have these things clamped down? That Are people saying, hey, we've had enough of this? I think so. Um, I think the popularity of the proposed uh, update to the CCPA, the CPRA, which is now on the California ballot. I talked to one of the authors um, at RSA. He said that the polling for it was the highest of any uh, proposed um, ballot initiative in history. So I think that bodes well for, for Californians. And I'm hoping that other states will take note of this and start using the same model for their, their residents. What about the potential reach of these laws? You know, GDPR was, I think, uh, one of the things that famously that how it caught people's attention was that it, its reach extends beyond uh, just the EU to, uh, if you're a anywhere in the world and you're handling people from the EU's data, it, it applies to you. I, the CCPA uh, is, is similar. Is that a way to to sort of, uh, I don't know, extend the, the grip of, of these regulations so that it doesn't necessarily matter where you are, that they can, they can affect you either way? I think it's a good model. And, and here's why. Say that you are a, a company in the EU and you're marketing directly to California residents or, or any particular state, would it be fair to not have the benefit of California law to protect those individuals? Because certainly that's the view of the European Union, that the GDPR protects individuals that are uh, EU data subjects, protects them around the world. So why not? Um, why not use that same, that same model? I think it's the way to go. I think that uh, it really forces us to think about what are we doing with someone's personal data and uh, how it needs to be treated with respect. What do you suppose equilibrium looks like when it when it comes to these sorts of things? Where, if we were to find balance between the appropriate use of our data and people's privacy, in your mind's eye, can you imagine what that might look like? Yeah, I think that being able to provide a list to individuals of exactly what you're doing in a bullet point form with their personal information and having them understand that these are the things they're doing in exchange for whatever you're giving them, whether it's a free email or it's a free weather app, or it's a free anything, but you're giving them a very clear idea. And we have this in consumer law um, already, where um, you're required to give certain information to consumers, whether it's about warranties, or it's about recalls, or what have you. Same thing for personal information. There should be an information sheet that gives you a very concise view of exactly what's being done with your data. 
not something that should be available at any website or if it's an app, going to the about section of the app and finding out exactly what the, the limitations are. But that should be something that's just issued with every device or every app. That way you understand exactly what you're getting yourself into. What about providing some sort of granularity to the users to be able to go through some sort of menu and say, hey, I'm willing to share this, but this is off limits. And, um, you know, perhaps I'd even be able to to pay a, a monthly fee to not to, to run the version of, let's say, Facebook, for example, uh, that isn't gathering all my information. I think that is is a great way to go. The problem is it requires some effort on the part of end users, and I don't know if they're willing to tolerate the effort. I think for for folks like your audience, they'd certainly be willing to go and check the, the boxes that they want to apply and say, fine, I'll pay for the rest, but I'll, I'll view your advertisements, I'll allow you to use my data, et cetera. And so it really gives you a lot of control. On the consumer side, you have to put in some effort to really understand what your data is being done with and um, and what you can do to protect yourself. So it's incumbent upon an, in consumers and not just the uh, the vendors of the smart devices or the uh, the apps. I'm looking at it from the other side of things for, for the organizations that may be gathering data. I mean, what sort of insights do you have for them? How should they be viewing? How should they be respecting the data that they're gathering? I think the the first thing to remember is that you're gathering data from real people, not from machines or other things like that. At the end of the day, there's a real person behind that data and what you do with it has an impact on their lives. Um, I think that uh, unfortunately, individuals tend to get involved in things on the internet that are just terrible for personal data, but there's no stopping these folks. And and I'll give you a great example that I'm, I'm still shocked five years later, the whole <laughs> Ashley Madison uh, hack that happened. The idea that, uh, and for the benefit of your listeners, this was a a website, an aficionado website where you could go on and allegedly look for someone to have an affair with. Okay. So Mm -hmm. put aside whether that's a smart idea. um, The idea that that data is not going to get monetized. It's very naive to think that 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 organization is not going to do something with that data. And that may be the whole business model is to get that data rather than any kind of a fee that you may be charging every month. Um, and also the idea that perhaps the people that set that up are not just a bunch of business people. It could be an intelligence agency. It could be a crime ring. I mean, there's no end to it. But consumers have to take a little more responsibility on what they're getting involved in on the Internet. And we're still seeing the repercussions of that hack today where people are being blackmailed and, and so forth. So it's on the on the consumer side to be skeptical and to be a, maybe a, a bit cynical like a privacy lawyer um, and not just on the uh, on the side of the app uh, developers. You know, I I think a lot of us feel uh, a little let down, you know, when things started moving online, when retailers and and many of the the businesses and services that we use went online, there was kind of this hopeful promise that, hey, this is going to be great for everybody. You're only going to see ads for things that you're interested in, and we're not going to waste your time with ads for things that that you would never purchase. And, And to a lot of us, that sounded like a great idea. But it seems as though we've gone way beyond that, where, you know, how many of our friends and family now, they, they talk about how so many of their their interactions are, are just creepy, where they feel as though I had a conversation with someone about something, or I did a little bit of searching for something online, and now that search or that conversation is following me around, and I feel like I'm being pestered to buy that thing no matter where I go online. It's frustrating, especially if you've already bought the thing in question and still follows you around, <laughs> right, which right, drives right. me bonkers. So, right. Uh, uh, I don't need a pro- second car. Yes, yeah, there was a second a lot of things. 
Right, and right. <laughs> this drives me bonkers because sometimes it'll follow you from years ago. It just seems like that um, there's a certain degree of either laziness on the part of advertisers or inability to, to really fulfill that idea of precise targeting. I would love to get ads that really understand what I'm looking for, but there's mm. not a lot of intelligence or thought behind these ads. And, and it escapes me why that's the case. If you're going to ask for my personal data, at least do something smart with it. But in fact, they're just doing the same stuff that we've been seeing for the, te- the past 10 years. And so I think it's incumbent upon the advertising industry, which is this entire invisible industry. I, very few people really understand how that ecosystem works for internet advertising. Um, they need to, to step up to the plate and say, how can we make ads, which support a lot of things that we, we have, how can we make the ads a little more of a better fit? and a little less creepy and intrusive. Because I agree, there's a, there's a fine line between, hey, that's spot on, and wow, how did they know that? That is not mm. cool. And, and I think right. we've all had those moments. What, what's your advice for folks out there who want to take a more active role in protecting their privacy? Do, do you have any tips for some of the ways they can best go about that? Uh, well, first is a healthy dose of cynicism um, that <laughs> if you're getting something for free, that there's going to be data of yours that's going to be sold. And it may come from things that you didn't expect. We talked about the Weather uh, Channel app earlier, but um, certain things that are if they're gaining, uh, shall we say, um, notoriety in a negative way, perhaps they're very common uh, that people and even children participate in. And now we have stories that uh, data is going to be sold or shared with the Chinese government, et cetera. You really have to have a very cynical view of everything that is on your, your, your phone. And in fact, if we all pull out our phones right now and look at the hundred or so apps, how many of those do we really use? We maybe use 10 at the most. Um, why mm. not get rid of things you're not using? Things that have your personal information, but you're not getting anything out of them. You downloaded it once, you played around with it, and you forgot about it. Um, I think that kind of, of a very proactive, if I don't need it, I'm getting rid of it viewpoint uh, is the best way to, to go with this. And that's great for, for apps and for mobile devices, but think about everything else we have in our lives. All the internet of things. Routers, they're, the, they're one of the worst offenders. It's not easy to update a router to make sure you have the latest security. So that's a problem in and of itself beyond just having our personal data taken from an app and having apps talk to one another when they shouldn't. You have this whole other issue of how do you get these devices to make sure that they understand what you want out of security. All right, Ben, what do you think? Yeah, another very informative conversation. This hits on a lot of themes we've heard from some of our previous guests, that the amount of information being collected from us without our consent is going beyond the scope of what it's ever been. And lawmakers and policymakers have just been very slow to address this. You know, I think one positive I took away from the interview is the long arms of the European Union and California have really uh, started to effectuate change in this area, which is good, especially in the absence of federal action. And Scott seemed to think that this is something that can be done at the state level. I still would prefer, I think, from a compliance perspective to have federal privacy legislation just so you can have some level of uh, uniformity. Uh, Mm -hmm. But definitely a, a really interesting interview. Um, and I uh, was very glad to hear from Mr. Giordano. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. 
Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. We'd like to thank all of you for listening. That is our show. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>